Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives, our podcast about the ideas which are shaping the EBRD regions and beyond. I'm Jonathan Charles, and today we're discussing a core EBRD concept, transition. How do economies in transition make that transition to market economies? What are the advantages? How does the market economy respond to the challenges of globalization? Well, our chief economist, Sergei Guriev, is here to discuss all of that, discuss the relationship between transition economics, institutional economics, organizational economics, all a lot of economics. But, Sergei, why is the market economy, why is that always considered to be the most optimal development model? Well, the history is definitely on market economy, on capitalist side. And uh, when we think about uh, how our bank was established and the times when transition started, that was the time when it was clear that command economy just does not work in a very uh, basic sense of this world. Uh, world. Uh, we saw that Soviet economy just went bankrupt, mm. which was quite an event if you think about how many shocks Soviet economy went through, how it was one of the major superpowers, and it just disappeared. In the words of one of the historians, it seemed to be forever until it was never more. In the last years of uh, Soviet economy, it was running 10-year percent of GDP budget deficit. In the very last year, it was 30% of GDP. It was just not sustainable. It could not actually work, and it had to change. And uh, at, the other, uh, at the same time, we saw other economies uh, in the Western Europe, in the United States, in Japan, very diverse backgrounds, and yet converging on the model of uh, markets, private ownership, uh, these economies delivered much higher living standards, and it was clear that transition to market economics was the only way forward. So you could argue it's the difference between rigidity, perhaps, under command economies and flexibility under market economies. It also freedom. I think market economy has also this uh, philosophical idea that if you let people do what they actually want to do, it may work out better. It's not just flexibility, but also this optimistic view on human nature. You may refer to Adam Smith's invisible hand, but it turns out that with some intervention from the government, with some role of the government to correct for market failures, basically markets work, markets deliver, and economic freedom is actually outperforming economic command and control. So you're a transition economist, but how do you describe the difference between transition economics, institutional economics, and organizational economics? What is the difference between those three schools? <laughs> yes, this, uh, this is a very good question. And actually, as you mentioned, institutional economics has uh, flourished in the last 20, 30 years exactly because we saw that transition is about a massive institutional change, comprehensive institutional change. And these things don't come out easily. And uh, the return of institutional economics, the attention paid to the somewhat forgotten works of Coase, Williamson, Ostrom, and so on, uh, this was driven by the challenges we saw in Central Eastern Europe, in uh, former Soviet Union, in the East Asian transition economies. We saw that institutions matter, and therefore there was this um, return of new institutional economics. And basically institutional economics is about how institutions change, what drives the uh, development of institutions, why institutions matter, and we saw that transition is exactly about institutional economics. And then uh, another development was, of course, the political economy. Uh, transition economics was about understanding political economy of institutional change, why some societies ma uh, managed to promote 
the right kinds of institutions while the others were stuck in the equilibrium with the bad kinds of institutions. We've had 25 years experience now of looking at these uh, transition economies. What would you think are the biggest challenges they face? Well, the, th that's a very, very good question. We, we, we see a divergent experience of uh, some countries which are stuck in the middle, some countries actually going in circles, some countries very close to West European counterparts. And of course, the major challenge is to create a sustainable, inclusive market economy. The economy where the society thinks that reforms are legitimate. The current state of socioeconomic institutions is something that the society accepts to be fair and working for the whole society. Some countries have achieved it, some countries uh, apparently have not. Overcoming the initial shock, though, can be a big thing, can't it? As you start the transition process, you can have one heck of a shock. This is exactly true. Uh, the first few years of transition, almost in every country, were a very big shock. In some cases, society was able and ready to withstand this shock because there was a clear understanding of joining Europe, of building a new nation state. And so people were prepared to take those sacrifices. In some countries, uh, shock was stronger. In some countries, shock was actually accompanied with uh, devolution of empire and uh, national humiliation. And this is where uh, societies were rejecting the idea of transition and actually reversing the reforms. What would you hold out as the, as the great poster boys and girls of, of transition? Which countries would you say were the, the heralds of success? Well, here at the BRD, we, of course, have a very simple answer to that. We have graduated one country, Czech Republic, and uh, by the very virtue of the process, uh, this is the country which has finished the transition, has become a European, developed European economy. But uh, if we go beyond that, of course, we see several countries in Central and Eastern Europe in uh, our measuring the quality of institutions, we see that some of those countries, for example, the Baltic states, are functioning better than some West European economies by now. Why do you think they were successful and some others weren't? That's uh, a very, very good question. I think, as I mentioned, there was a national consensus mm. that European future is the only way forward and many sacrifices can be made. Uh, but also, in some of those countries, elites were also prepared to be in the same boat with the public. And uh, the overall ethical basis for the reforms was there. And uh, the public understood that uh, there is a consensus for building better institutions. And that's the way the countries can regain their independence, build a new nation state, a renewed nation state, and rejoin the European family. And I think this is something which economists don't always understand or respect. But non-economic factors, of course, support the legitimacy of the reforms, reduce the socioeconomic pain from the reforms, and prepare uh, societies for a longer, longer view. And in that sense, uh, some of those countries that were more prepared to take the sacrifices have done better. And of course, when we look at the successes, there are the more difficult cases as well. And we often talk about uh, neighbors, the success of Poland, the difficult challenges faced by Ukraine, where really the standard of living has not increased. In fact, it's in some cases worsened. This is actually a, a quintessential example of how transition works and how it doesn't. If you go back to early 1990s, living standards in Ukraine and Poland were actually mm. similar. Now the gap is something like three times. And uh, this is a, a 
just 25 years ago, just live of one generation. And that shows how reforms can actually deliver in economic terms, but also in social terms. We also see that population of Poland has increased, population of Ukraine has decreased because of social pressures, because of economic uh, hardship, because of uh, immigration. And uh, this, these issues are very visible. And that shows that in a reasonably short period of time, you can either deliver or fail to deliver. And that's why I think we are all at the BRD very excited to mm. work now with Ukraine, because now we see some momentum for reforms and our experience from the 25 years working in countries like Poland can actually help to see Ukraine in 25 years being part of Europe, being similar to today's Poland. You're listening to Pocket Economics, the EBRD podcast on how economic ideas help to change people's lives. And of course, you can have your say on how relevant the market economy is, transition economics. Uh, you can contact us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook, uh, hashtag Pocket Economics. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Jonathan Charles, and today we are examining that relationship between transition economics and other forms of economics. Uh, Sergei Guriev, the global financial crisis, you know, has been pretty painful for transition economists, as it has been for many absolutely well-developed economies. Do you think it's changed the way we think of transition? This is uh, exactly true. Uh, we, when we think about what transition should be, one of the qualities of sustainable market economy is its ability to withstand global shocks. Mm. In many of these countries, you would have governance institutions that were developed quite well and converging to Western standards, and yet the shock which originated somewhere else destroyed their financial systems. Mm. And in that sense, when we work with our countries of operations today, we now pay attention to resilience to external shocks. We talk much more about developing local currency financial markets, capital markets, because uh, financial institutions that are more diversified are better prepared to withstand those, uh, those shocks. And uh, one of the things which economists used uh, to underappreciate was that these shocks have long-term legacies. Uh, long-term implications. You may have an uh, external shock uh, originating in the U.S. The U.S. is already growing, is doing much better, and employment in the U.S. is low. And yet we have some countries, including some of our countries of operations, where implications of this shock are still felt today. So we need to think about challenges related to resilience to external shocks. We also need to think about challenges related to inclusions, not leaving young people behind, providing them with career opportunities. All these issues are part of the transition that we understand it today, not just introducing markets, but also building markets and institutions that help the economy to be sustainable and inclusive. It shows something quite important, doesn't it? It shows in a way that one difficulty that transition economies have is that they're not masters of their own destiny, that they do face these external shocks uh, in a way that perhaps some very big, well-developed economies can, can actually get over far more easily. I think uh, this is true, unfortunately, today for almost every country. Uh, most of uh, economies in the world, including the United States, including China, are very much dependent on their neighbors, on the global economic superpowers, and none of them can say I'm insulated from external shocks. Today's world is globalized and there is no way back. Uh, whatever uh, we want to say or whatever we want to reject, I think globalization is here and even United States cannot say that we are insulated and we are protected. If we think back 25, 26 years ago, back to the fall of communism, we had a fairly clear idea of where countries were meant to be transiting to. It was almost to the, the Western model of market economies. 
But actually, over the past 26 years, that model itself has changed. So does that make the transition more complicated? Uh, this is this is correct. When when you start transition, you look at France hmm. and Germany and Sweden and United States from a very long distance. For you, in 1991, if you're located in Poland or Hungary or, for that matter, in Soviet Union, you see that these countries are all the same. They all have markets. They all have private property. They also also have uh, democratic political institutions. Now, when you get closer. You start seeing the differences between Sweden and France, and United Kingdom, and Germany, and Greece, and the United States. Especially the balance between actually the state and the private sector in all these uh, different cases. Yes, every country in Europe and in the rest of the West has a different social contract, mm. and this social contract exactly looks at the balance at what the state is supposed to do and what the markets or individuals have to do, and I think this is a very big difference between different models of capitalism. And that's why now when we talk about transition, especially in advanced transition countries, there is always a choice between moving closer to Swedish model or moving closer to French model uh, or moving closer to Anglo-Saxon model. These are different models, and the closer you get, the more nuance there is. Actually, and that, that's an interesting point, isn't it, especially at this time of debate about where economies should evolve to, this question about globalization, about whether capitalism should be reined back, mm -hmm. uh, you, get the, you get the situation where some transition economies might actually pursue, be pursuing a more extreme form of capitalism than some of the more socially minded debates which are now taking place in some Western European countries. Part of that is related to financial economics and access to finance. Some of our countries of operation, some of Eastern European economies cannot afford uh, the fiscal policies pursued by advanced and rich economies. So some of them are actually sticking to Maastricht criteria to a greater extent than their Western counterparts because they're smaller, their financial markets are less developed, so they cannot just afford to be as profligate and spending too much. They need to be more disciplined exactly because otherwise the markets would punish them. So where does transition go next then, Sergey? How does it develop in the years ahead? So once uh, once again, I think the simple answer to this question is there is no simple answer. There is no one-size-fits-all answer, uh, no solution that is the same for all transition countries. And each country has its own uh, list of challenges, and this is what we do in the bank. We actually look at different dimensions of transition. We look which uh, which countries have to pay more attention to governance, to improving institutions, which countries have to pay more attention to inclusion and different kinds of inclusion. And in that sense, I think there is no simple way uh, to answer this question. But I think uh, now what transition has taught us is a number of lessons on importance of sustainability, resilience, inclusion. And some of these lessons are now being relearned in the Western counterparts as well. Some of West European countries, some of Southern European countries start listening to what the bank has to say about the political economy of reforms, political economy of institutional change. And I think uh, this also is important because we are now in the same boat, in the same capitalist, globalized world uh, where markets do deliver, but governments should support the markets depending on what societies are happy to delegate to governments and to markets. 
All right, and uh, actually, Sergey, in the past few minutes, you were alluding there uh, quite a few times to the EBRD's six transition qualities. If you're interested in finding out more, by the way, you can uh, find out uh, on ebrd.com. There's a lot written there about it. Sergey, thank you very much indeed. That's it for today. Do share your thoughts with us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes, SoundCloud, and ebrd.com slash podcast to download previous episodes. And remember, the reviewing and rating pocket economics, well, that helps others to find it. Until next time, goodbye.